Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Software Robotics Podcast. Uh, hello, Professor Douglas. Thanks so much uh, for joining us on the podcast. Uh, I would like to ask you first how you would like to introduce and define yourself for the audience for first time listening to you. Sure, no problem. Uh, happy to be here. My name is Dr. Douglas Blackiston. Yeah. I'm a senior research scientist in the Allen Discovery Center at Tufts University. Mm-hmm. And I would define myself broadly as a developmental biologist. Thanks so much for joining. So I would like to go back for your childhood. Uh, do you have any members being interested in science as a kid? Do you have any members about that? I do. I have a lot. I had a father who was, was really big mm-hmm. in pushing me to explore both just the natural environment by hiking and going out on walks yeah. and also giving me a lot of science-based educational toys as a young child. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sounds interesting, yeah. So maybe because today we are going to discuss uh, the living cell and how we can design them. And we had an episode with Professor Josh Bongard uh, from University of Vermont about uh, xenobots. But maybe we first ask you this question, how you would like to define biology since you have this expertise for maybe people from robotics background and how you would like to define about uh, biology in general? Yeah, so I think biology um, is, is just a hugely diverse field that, that ranges from the microscopic, right? So we have people that study a single protein for their entire careers and just look at its binding properties and what turns it on and what turns it off and what it does and how it folds. And then you have people that study macro scale, multi-million year evolutionary processes across yeah. you know, all sorts of different time uh, frames and sizes and everything in between. So I think the, the thing to remember is that whether you see it or not, biology is both all around you and within you at any given time at yeah. all scales. And you're really participating in this living world, um, whether you're awake or you're asleep or you're walking around your apartment or you're out in nature, and that all of these are, are the basis of inference for different biological disciplines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah. So maybe I'm curious to ask you, since you have uh, been working in different uh, research line in biology, it's all, all interesting, but I'm curious to ask you what could be inspiring factors when you do your research. Something makes you excited, interested, still you don't understand well, how it's happening. Do you have an example that you can share with us? Oh, I don't even know where to begin this list. There's so many. So I think for just like for for any science field, being curious about the world around you is always where it starts. And for me, one of the most amazing things, which which will dovetail a little bit into some of what we'll talk about today, Mm -hmm. is I did my PhD studying butterflies and caterpillars. And I've always just been fascinated by metamorphosis. I, Mm -hmm. I think the idea that you could provide someone with a caterpillar and a butterfly that had never seen one and tell them this is literally the same organism would, would not be obvious to a casual observer. You have something that that crawls, that chews food mm-hmm. mechanically, um, and you know that's fairly primitive as far as its vision and its smell, that basically wraps itself up into a ball, reorganizes its body, and then what emerges is this flying organism that drinks nectar, 
that can mm -hmm. navigate its environment, that has all these complex behaviors. And I think yeah. seeing that happen before your eyes, either in the laboratory or in the world, is, is just an amazing experience. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm curious to ask you, because we have this question in the podcast that um, design of soft robotics is always inspired by the nature. And when we look to nature, how they figure out this design, either locomotion or maybe um, any kind of maybe mechanical behavior or adapting to a shape to the environment. And one of the examples, when we look to human, they have this hybrid design from bones to tissue and blood. So we ask what could be the missing pieces of understanding. Sometimes we still have this kind of, we don't understand how this creature develops this behavior or adapting to the shape. So when you look into biology, of course, this is a proud perspective here, but if you can tell us what could be the missing pieces in understanding, since you are a biologist, do you think maybe as an engineer, we lack understanding how this uh, creature work or to which level maybe the science developed uh, answers for this question about the evolution and how this creature developed? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think this is something that's come up a lot in my collaborations with roboticists. And, and it's funny because it, we come at it from two different perspectives. I think in, in one hand, the biologists know a lot more than roboticists mm -hmm. think we know. So there's just so, such an excruciating amount of detail uh, about, you know, from the molecular genetic up to the organismal level about how these systems are regulated and DNA versus epigenetic cues versus tissue level decisions mm -hmm. versus development, organogenesis, and, and how do you get shape out of groups of cells that don't really know where they are or who their neighbors are. Um, on the flip side, I would also say, when you get into it, I think roboticists would be fairly amazed at how primitive a biologist's knowledge is into these subjects. So we are, are only skimming the surface. You know, we've had molecular genetics now for, for a while, for mm -hmm. well over 50 years, but we, we are just beginning to dig into the nitty gritty of, of how things work. Mm -hmm. And so you could think, you know, if, if you brought a cell phone from today and gave it to someone a hundred years ago, how long it would take them to, to disentangle all of those systems and really understand how it works. And so, you know, for example, in neuroscience, we, we still don't really have an answer to where and how is information stored in the brain. We have been picking apart brains for, mm -hmm. for a number of years. Um, we still don't really understand totally how shape is, is captured in the genetics of an organism. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of pathways, right? If, if you ask me, how do you build an eye? I can give you a pathway that tells you what genes turn on in a mammalian system and, and how those unpackage and how those lead you from a stem cell to an eye. Mm -hmm. But if I gave you that pathway and said, where is the shape of the eye? How does this make a sphere? None of that is contained in that circuit level diagram. And so our understanding of shape and morphology is, is still pretty rough around the edges at the moment. Mm -hmm. That's really wonderful because you mentioned the morphology and I think even in soft robotics now we speak about uh, morphological computation and how the shape mm -hmm. is important and when we look even example of this dead fish uh, swimming upstream and and that is was I think maybe because of the morphology of the fish and also the environment and that was astonishing they're still functioning although they are dead mm -hmm. so if you can tell us the morphology how this shape as we human being, why we have this shape? Or you ask yourself, why does this creature have this certain shape like that? And do you think maybe we can advance the shape we have already in, in nature or biology? As a biology, do you have a kind of thought like that? Why we have the shape? Why can we adapt the shapes to something completely maybe exotic or different? 
Yeah, so uh, there's a lot, definitely a lot to unpack with those types of questions. So I, I think, you know, using examples like the dead fish and the morphology, what, what's tricky is compared to traditional uh, sort of um, what we would call perhaps materials, living materials are really hard to predict. And so there's there's interesting feedbacks, um, you know, there's there's odd, odd sort of um, a lot of this, I guess we would consider from from the biological and more more of a closed loop system. So there's all sorts of feedbacks and these are really non-intuitive. So a lot of what we do in biology is, is really the old fashioned way. You just have to look. There's a lot of observation. And so a lot of our inspiration comes from curiosity and just mm-hmm. interrogating the system. Um, so, you know, I, I think absolutely we are able to understand and control aspects of morphology and understand how that feedbacks can feedback into the system. Um, and, and I think what, what's amazing to me is specifically, which we can talk about with our living robots, Mm -hmm. what we're starting to understand is, is every extant system that we've investigated has been under the, the purview of, of natural selection, right? So these have been in the natural world and have been selected based on the principles of inheritance and genotype and phenotype. And what we're doing now is, is we're starting to understand what if we uncouple design from natural selection? So what if we use a computer to design an organism, something mm-hmm. that could never theoretically exist in a natural selection scenario, but might be really interesting, sort of a, a biological robot, so to speak. And, and I think that's beginning to push the limits of, of what we understand yeah. on how morphology and shape can play into behaviors and, and what sort of control knobs we have that we can tune in these systems. Mm-hmm. Great, yeah. So maybe we can here uh, have the question about how we can define living system. Since you're in the biology, maybe a student asks how I can design the living system and what could be the possibility for design of incorporating a living uh, systems? with maybe artificial material. If you can tell us firstly, what is living system and how you design them and what could be potential um, possibilities for selecting different tissue from the biology mm-hmm. or maybe creature you have in your lab. Yeah, so, so um, it's, uh, the, the definition of alive and living systems is actually still fairly controversial in biological circles. And so mm-hmm. different groups will define it differently. I would say for the purpose of building hot um, biohybrid robots or living robots, we would say that a living system is a system that in, in some way has its own biological metabolism. So it has a means of mm-hmm. energy production and a way of consuming the energy to produce some sort of effect, whether it's behavior or biochemical. Um, and I think as far as designing systems, I can talk about how we design ours, uh, but the really the most vital question moving forward is, Within biology, we, we really have, uh, compared to the diversity of organisms in the world, very few model organisms that we've brought into the lab to begin to use. And so from vertebrates, we have a handful, you know, six or seven, mm-hmm. and then we have a lot of single cell. And so we really have a, a extremely limited toolkit to begin with. So you could think of, imagine a robotics facility that only has two types of motors and three types of actuators mm-hmm. and maybe four types of scaffolds. That's sort of the level that we're at with our ability to, to use these organisms. And so when building, I think you, you think about a robot in the environment in which you would deploy a physical robot is really important for the design principles you would use. And so for us, it's very similar. So I build 
biological robots out of frog cells. I, I use a soft robot simulator with, in collaboration with my colleagues at University of Vermont, which simulates evolution to design soft-bodied robots with different types of cells to perform a specific function, like moving, it evolves robots randomly. And then what I do is I go into a frog embryo and harvest stem cells and layer them from the ground up, basically decompose the embryo into Lego blocks. Each block is a cell. And then I relayer those Lego blocks or cells to create a new morphology where the cells develop and reattach. Um, and, and I think we can talk about why the frog is what I think right mm -hmm. now is the ideal system for this type of work. But also um, it depends on your, your use scenario. So if you would like to build a robot out of cells to go inside of a human body, the needs would be very different. And uh, putting a frog cell inside of a human body would, would likely be very catastrophic mm -hmm. to the patient. Um, and likewise, if you would like something that can tolerate extreme temperatures, either hot or cold, the frog might not be the best uh, tool for the job. And so uh, I think just like traditional robots, you really have to define your application, which will help inform the type of material you'll use to build your living robot. Mm -hmm. That's really wonderful. Maybe I'm maybe just argument here about when once you mentioned that maybe living tissue is hard to predict and it's maybe complex as you mentioned. What are maybe the scenario for complexity for predicting the behavior? And if you think it's really complex to sometimes to predict the behavior, um, if we imagine that we we can design living system um, for cure uh, like like cancer in human body, for example. Mm -hmm. What could be the limitation? And if you mentioned also frog cells is catastrophic to human body, also can also look great about that for designing so that we can have uh, a clear right. perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So so this is really interesting, and I've only begun to have conversations about this with colleagues. But but biology really spans mm. the, the whole range of control systems, and so there are biological organisms that are very much open loop. Um, and so C. elegans is, is sort of a classic model. This is a nematode worm. It starts from a single cell and every single nematode uh, C. elegans that develops, develops with exactly the same number of cell divisions in exactly the same way. And the final organism has exactly the same number of cells in the same positions. And that cannot be perturbed. And if you delete one of those cells during development, mm -hmm. that whole lineage is lost. So it's completely predictable to the cell. Every neuron, everything is identical. And then you have other organisms uh, like, like Hydra, which is an aquatic organism mm -hmm. that you can literally put through a sieve and blend up, put together in a pile and it will reform itself, no problem. You can cut it in half and it will regenerate. And so, you know, we have these, these closed loop systems where there's all sorts of feedback. And for the medical community, this is these types of terms that roboticists use that I'm only beginning to be get familiar with are starting to come into play. And there's been some people who have thrown out just as a thought exercise, could cancer be a system in which you're moving from a closed loop to an open loop? Perhaps the cells in your body mm -hmm. are responding to their environment and they are developing along a certain trajectory that's healthy and they're producing a healthy tissue. But when they lose track of that, if they get into a cycle where uh, the system is open and it's just reproducing without any input from its external environment, that could lead to cancer. So this overproduction of cells that are not differentiating or participating in a healthy body. Um, so I think there's a lot of really interesting cross-pollination sort of terminology 
and, and design principles that hasn't really happened yet between the robotics and the biological community, but it's really fertile ground for research for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, great. So maybe uh, when you select, for example, the Genobot, the frog cell for designing this uh, tiny living robot, so that could be the most important question we have to consider in terms of maybe this, this as you mentioned, design, you have been cooperating with uh, Professor Josh Bonger at Vermont, but maybe the question from you, a biology asks that reports us to that. That is a question I need answer from you guys so that we can maybe design or fabricate this cell. What could be this kind of question you have uh, corresponding with robotics side? Yeah, so I think what we constantly grapple with is um, the level of abstraction that's appropriate for each discipline. And so modeling everything in biology is, is, is clearly impossible. Number one, mm -hmm. we don't have the information. And number two, if we did the computation necessary to, to, to really model even within one cell, what is happening at a given moment would not be feasible. It is mm. incredibly complex. And so we constantly struggle with how far we can abstract out. And so from the, the, the robotic side, really understanding how the physics are modeled is pretty important. So the biology is, is, is really sensitive to things like stresses and friction mm. um, and deformation. Um, and sometimes the, the, the simulations produce things that when I see, are just not possible. So, so for example, one, one practical example is uh, robots in simulation tend to form, form really hard edges, like a right angle. And mm. in biology, that is not something that we see very often. Like mm. you can think of a tree or an organism. There's not often something that comes out and then at a perfectly perpendicular angle forms a, a line. Uh, biology tends to round and smooth structures. And so, sort of understanding how the simulation is abstracting the biology is important and make, making sure that the model is is uh, has a design filter that's appropriate for a biological system yeah that's a really excellent point yeah yeah so maybe i hear the, the question about what could be something you think uh, is very important or maybe as a community from biology or biohybrid design i'm speaking this perspective still disagree or doesn't get much attention. So something in the biohybrid design for living cells. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love biohybrids a, a ton. I think they approach questions different than someone who does a fully living biological robot mm -hmm. with no synthetic scaffolds. I think what's interesting to me that it's just a difference of approach is um, I think their their scaffolds are really the strong point. They, they can build quickly and with precision these, these synthetic structures that they're using to see biological structures. But what's interesting is, is they tend to think of these things as very passive and fixed designs, right? So we build a, an actuator or a scaffold and that's it. And so I wish they would spend a little bit more time actually evolving the different scaffolds. So how can they use the scaffolds or evolve scaffolds for different purposes? So instead of saying, I want one scaffold that's going to make a swimmer, really work on different types of scaffolds and say, by using the same types of cells, just by modifying the non-biological part, we can get all these different types of behaviors. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think they tend to focus on the question from the opposite way and say, we have a scaffold that does X, let's see what other types of cells or different types of control we can do from the biological end. Um, and then the other thing I would say is a lot of this work uh, in both uh, biological and biohybrid designs really have biomedical endpoints. And I, I think that's likely due to funding reasons. So the idea of treating human disease or delivering drugs 
but I think there's a lot of both basic science and, and purely robotic applications for biohybrids that hasn't really been evaluated yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. So maybe here's a question about, uh, since you highlighted that about maybe we can use biology as living tissues, for example, or living cell, and also the biohybrid designs. There's approaches now we can uh, combine living cells with artificial material. How do you see the complication of combining uh, human tissues, for example, there's some sort of how we can maybe have infinite power and we never grow uh, and, and go older. So do you think how we can um, combine living tissue with artificial material? Do you think this is challenging? And do you have any thought about this idea combining two different material? No, so I think I think there's there's a few ways to go with that. Number one, I think that the combination of, of living and non-living material is, is perfectly acceptable. And so, so bone is alive, but a lot of what bone does for our, our joints is, is structural. And so there's mm. already this idea of, you know, we have an endoskeleton, uh, insects and arthropods have exoskeletons. So a lot of what they're doing is, is really similar to, to the artificial components of, of biohybrid mm. designs. Um, I also think we haven't really explored uh, what we would call chimeric design. So there's no reasons that cells from different organi- organisms can't both colonize a biohybrid scaffold. So you may have cells from one type of organism for one task. I, I don't know what that would be. Mm-hmm. And cells from another type of organisms, even humans, right? We use uh, valves that are made from pigs to treat humans in heart disease, and that's tolerated perfectly fine. There's, there's obviously a lot of medical science that went into producing that, but these things translate fairly well across pretty diverse taxa. Um, and, and as far as lifespan, that's a huge area of biological research right now. So there are cells that have become immortalized. They, they need food, but they essentially live forever. The risk there is that that's an easy pathway to get to cancer. So unregulated growth is not particularly the, the end all and be all because cancer can also be immortal, but that's not really what you're trying to produce. And then within cell biology, there's a lot of research going into just how to understand the lifespan of a cell. So mm-hmm. what are the dynamics of chromosome degradation and why do cells age and how can we control that? And that would be useful both for hybrids, hybrid designs, as well as just for human health in the long term and understanding how to prolong the lifespan of humans. Mm-hmm. So maybe for the designing, we mentioned that maybe when you go for human side, you have to select different tissue rather than frog cells. Correct. And if you can't design different this system, do you have the same methodology or you have to go for scratch? I mean that every cell or every tissue from different um, creature is different in the process. You have to shift all the way of thinking about it or it's just like uh, building blocks at the end of the day. My, so my, my gut tells me that the design principles that we have now should be applicable across many organisms. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm using frog cells, but um, we have uh, unpublished work that I can't talk about yet, that Mm -hmm. that I can strongly say that this principle applies to many different cell types outside of amphibians, and it works very well. And there's obviously small tricks, just in like the idea of, of building different types of robots. There's certainly differences in methodology but the overall principles are, are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what we're really leveraging here is that most of biology 
contains this tremendous plasticity and this ability to uh, self-organize in ways that really promotes building structures and, and recombining and that the tissue is surprisingly amenable to this. Um, I think the big hurdle that we face is right now, a lot of what we're doing in both biohybrids and fully biological robots is still fairly manual and labor intensive. So I'm building these in groups of 20 to 30 by hand and each one takes a few hours to build and lives 10 days. And where we really need help, where I think robotics has excelled, is moving this to automated designs. And so mm -hmm. there are 3D cell printers that deposit cells like you would ink and build from the ground up, but they're not really made with the type of precision that we have in mind for bio hybrids or for biological robots. But I think adapting those would allow us to move from producing hundreds to tens of thousands of robots in a week or a month. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think for the fabrication, you still maybe what could be the serious limitation for fabrication or manufacturing of living cell, which is a scale, of course. What could be still Correct. challenging for you? Yes. Yeah. And and what's nice is cells cells are fairly tolerant. There are, there are many cell types that can be frozen even for for, for months mm. and thawed out depending on the conditions. And there are some that can be kept in almost a stasis depending on the conditions. And so you can imagine a world in the future, a moonshot, where you essentially have different bins where, where each printer cartridge is a different cell type. And then the robot simply goes and grabs the different inks and can print basically from scratch whatever you would like with high resolution. So you have yeah. you know, a bin of 100,000 neurons and a bin of 100,000 muscle cells and a bin of 100,000 skin cells. And really, they all just feed together and sort of print in real time uh, a designer organism, so to speak. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, maybe I'm curious to to which level uh, this living cell are intelligent and do they have emotion? I think even in soft robotics, we speak about the smart material and how the material can make the computation. And I think human also is a good example for mm -hmm. this kind of uh, intelligence. But for living cell, uh, if you speak about frog cell here, which levels are intelligent and does he have emotion? Yeah, this is extremely unclear. Uh, it's not controversial, but I would say it's only something people have begun to think about in maybe the past 10 or 15 years. And there's this idea of basal cognition. And so we know now that there are a lot of organisms that do not have brains, but they show some sort of rudimentary form of learning and memory. And we've also seen examples of even single-celled organisms that are capable of hunting, swimming, sensing their environment, moving through, through uh, complicated sort of mazes. Um, so I would say that while cells and xenobots and frog cells, we certainly wouldn't say they have the type of consciousness we would attribute to a higher organism like a human. Uh, you know, I, I doubt they, they're, they're thinking about their sense of self and purpose um, and, and, and identity. But on the other hand, uh, I'm fairly certain that there's a, a fair amount of computation and decision making that's happening within a cell at any given time. There's, there's choices that are being made that are not simply the result of binary programming. Um, you know, there's, there's decision trees. Do I, do I divide right now if my nutrients are limited or do I wait? until I have more food, but then risk that I haven't divided? Um, do I take care of repairing or do I deal with some other pressing stimuli that's coming in? So I think there's a lot of signal to noise filtering and decision-making that's happening at any given time. 
Unfortunately, what we just don't have are good tools to, to dig into how those decisions are being made mm. and, and what are the, the systems that are, are being accessed at any given time because the information is just, is just so large. Even for one cell, the amount of input that that cell is getting at any given time from its environment, from its neighbors, from its internal state, from its physiology, from its you know, chromosomes, it's, it's really a lot to sift through. And, and you can't take out one piece and look at it in a vacuum because you're going to miss the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, yeah. So maybe I'm curious to ask you in that case, how they, uh, maybe we speak about Bruxelles, communicate with each other. Do you imagine how this communication is done? And also you mentioned they are not conscious. So maybe uh, we have a question here, but what, what do you think consciousness in, the, in biology is, is really looks like? Do you care about what's mm -hmm. consciousness in in human, maybe, for example, just out of curiosity. Yeah, so for the for how cells communicate with with each other, we actually do have pretty good tools for understanding that. So in, in many cells, multicellular organisms, uh, true multicellular organisms, where there's sort of a, a germ cell um, uh, soma division, they're directly coupled. So cells have what we call gap junctions. These are small holes that connect neighbors through which they can pass small molecules and signals. So this allows neighboring cells to talk directly and they can open and close those gap junctions and pass messages back and forth. And that's a very fast local signal. And then at the, the medium and long term, cells can secrete chemical codes to each other mm. that move over both short and long distances. So Within a field of cells, they may secrete a gradient that cells can follow. And if you want to go really far out, you can think about plants. And so if a caterpillar starts chewing on a leaf, a lot of times that plant will produce a alarm signal to its neighbors that signal the neighbors to start producing uh, anti-herbivore chemicals. And so this is sort of a secret language of plants that happens over sometimes a huge mm. area. Um, in the xenobots, we know that the cells talk at both a local and long-term level, and we're just beginning to decipher the types of, of codes that they're using. We think a lot of this is likely mediated by calcium, so the same way that our brain sends signals back and forth, the cells move calcium in and out of different compartments of the cells to communicate different aspects of what's going on. Um, as far as consciousness, I think that is a, an ongoing question for, for both the psychology and the, the biology field. And I think what we're getting good at is identifying the two extremes. So, you know, I think we, it's, it's fairly obvious when things are conscious, um, at least at the extreme level. And I think humans and, and most animals, we would say many of them are conscious. Mm. And I think at the most basic levels, when something is not conscious, when it's sort of acting strictly on programming, um, I, I would argue that a bacteria is likely not conscious uh, based on the evidence that we have. But I think in between there is an awful large gradient. And you know, based on evolutionary history, these things aren't switches generally that come on at once. They evolve over tens of millions of years. And there's likely to be a gray zone in the middle that's going to be quite hard to put into one pile or the other. And I think that's really challenging our aspects of, of how do you define consciousness? What is self? Um, I mean, even within humans, we're consciousness, but there's still a huge group of people that think what we do is largely deterministic. And if you could mm. really boil out all the physics of the human system, we're really just running programming, right? There's, yeah. there's sort of a tape that we're running. And if you were to play it back, things wouldn't change. So this is very much an open question and, and yeah. the definitions are not strict. That's a really wonderful answer, yeah. 
So maybe I'm curious to ask you about the damages or maybe injuries happening to these cells. And we ask mm -hmm. the question, how we can design a living cell, maybe never damage, and how they heal. I don't know if this is something from biology that we can have systems that never damage. For example, when we look to nature, for example, when we see, for example, geckos, they, when they lost their part, they can grow it again, but sometimes they have not the ideal shape again. And this mm -hmm. affects also the energy they have in their body. I don't know if you can tell us how, how this happened, maybe in the level of the cell, if there's damage or injury, how they can recover. And do you think you can uh, maybe design them in a way that they can never damage or maybe delay the damage according to morphology? Yes. So in, in biology, this there's really a spectrum that we understand pretty well now. So... Um, there's sort of three ways to tackle this. So, so number one is, is simply regeneration. Mm -hmm. So you allow the injury to proceed and then you simply replace the cells. So as, as a biological living system, you're capable of, of reproduction of your cells and you simply go from the blueprint and rebuild whatever was lost. Um, we also have what we would call wound healing. So that's very different than regeneration. And wound healing that often involves scar tissue and simply closing the wound. Um, and then last, you can morphologically, this is usually at the tissue or organism level, just simply change your morphology. So a lot of robots, if you lose a limb, uh, they become fairly non-functional. But in mammals or cats or dogs, we yeah. have plenty of animals that have lost a limb or even two limbs, and they adapt and they get around pretty well, all things considered. Um, at the repair level, we understand now a lot of the signals that go into repair. That there's these local signals that are very fast, and they signal the surrounding tissue that there's an injury of some kind. And often it can it can give nature into the severity of the injury. So a small injury that's easy to resolve will initiate repair, and a large injury that's fairly severe will initiate regeneration. And we're beginning to get tools to play with that in synthetic systems. And so certainly there's a lot of work to adapt to those cassettes and those those pathways to enhance or even uh, reduce the regenerative capacity of a biological system, depending on the need. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly for, for some cell types like spinal cords, that, that's a huge area of study is, is how do we regenerate a spinal cord? Whereas there's other organisms, a lot of lizards, that you can chop off their limbs and they re regrow their limbs, or they can even regrow part of their nervous system without much trouble. Mm. And we're trying to get control over those systems at the moment. Mm -hmm. Maybe a quick question here. Um, I, I have the perception it's very complex, as you say, but maybe I'm curious to ask you, as you have a number of years of research, why is it still maybe complex to figure out this question? We don't know from, from robotics, just to be curious, why it's very complex? Do you think what's maybe the main corner that in biology, this is still really um, mysterious for you? Yeah, so I think if you... If you think about how long we've had access to cells and how little we really mm. know. So if you ever see a diagram of a cell that's drawn proportionally and with all components, it is, it, it is uh, incredibly packed. So, you know, you have millions of base pairs that are being transcribed at a given time to make uh, mm. tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of proteins that are moving in and out of the nucleus into the surface. And you have receptors that are sensing all sorts of different signals and you have regulatory elements. And, and I think 
each time we peel away a layer, what we find is that there's more underneath that we don't understand. So, right, we had a lot of amazing cell biology before we even knew there was DNA as a hereditary element with Watson mm -hmm. and Crick. And then there was this push, well, DNA explains everything. If we simply sequence everything, we'll know everything about a cell. And then in the past 20 years, I would say we found that actually, no, that's not the case. Epigenetics is a whole field that shows that a lot of what happens is not encoded in the genome. It's environmental and there's feedback and there's nonlinear relationships between these things that happen. Hmm. And, and so we're really only beginning to understand all of the signals that come into a cell. And so, you know, in a robotics term, you could think about this as maybe um, we don't even know how many control knobs there are. We're only beginning to understand that there's a lot more than we thought that there were. And so we're really trying to understand the system without understanding all of the components that are working at the same time. We're missing a lot of levels of information. Yeah, that's interesting, yeah. So maybe I'm curious to ask you, uh, to which level the environment plays a role in the performance of the living cell? For example, when we look for soft robotics, sometimes we have to be in a structured environment at the first step. And then if you want to go to an unstructured environment, it would be tricky and sensibly yeah. dynamic and you don't predict what happened. But I think here is another level of complexity. You're living with, dealing with living cell. Maybe, of course, if we speak about simple design as we have in Xenobots, but if we speak about something in real application and going to different environment, human body, or maybe different, I don't know if you can tell us how the environment play a role. And do you think that you can tweak the design of them, making them responsive or having a stimulus to certain, uh, uh, I don't know, a certain phenomena or something. How do you envision the environment play a role in that? Absolutely. So the environment is key to how Xenobots move and perform and act. And what's nice is these are additional control knobs beyond the biology that we do have really precise control over, right? So we can mm -hmm. control aspects of surface friction in their environment. Uh, we can control the substrate. We can control the viscosity of the solution that's around them while they're moving or swimming or crawling. We can control aspects of the salinity of the solution. And these all affect how the bots perform. So for example, we have made swimming bots that have uh, little molecular oars on their surface which would, with which they can row and, and move liquids. And the swimmers move really gracefully over smooth surfaces. But if you give them something rough, they struggle. They tend to get caught on debris or uh, in, in chasms. But then we can make walking robots that really work well with rough terrain. They're sort of the ATV vehicles where they just climb over any debris. Mm. So that's really important. Um, on the on the other side of the equation, I would also say um, it's probably impressive to roboticists that that things like forces in environment really do play a huge role in biology. So biological cells can sense pressure and constriction and stretching. And there's a number of stem cells that literally just by pulling them or compressing them, you can change their fates, the way they develop. So they're sensitive to things like compression and deformation in ways that we didn't really appreciate or understand. And so those are ways in which their immediate environment can directly affect um, not just their behavior, but also their development and the genes that they turn on and a lot of the internal pathways that they control. Yeah, yeah. So maybe I hear the question about, I think that's a question we have all the time in the robotic community, how we can access the beneficial geometric and material nonlinearities in the material. And we mentioned the example of the dead fish swimming upstream, and that's example how the nonlinearities in the material could play a significant role in the behavior, adapting the shape mm -hmm. to the environment. So from the biology, 
of course, maybe we speak about designing the shape and how the morphology is so important. Can you figure out what could be the shape as a biologist? So, or you can figure out, oh, I, I just need this performance or just the formation or this behavior. Can you figure out how you can access them in a certain way? Do you have any kind of answer for that from your perspective? How to can access this richness in the in the living material, living cell, for example? Yes. So I think what's nice is a lot of this is observable from the outside in nature. So we have good examples. And mm -hmm. so even for things like buckling or non non um, non traditional sort of dynamics and shape, we have a lot of plants that have ruffled leaves, like like certain types of lettuce that is basically produced by buckling. It's this non-predicted system where you have stress and then to relieve the stress you get this buckling and it makes this rather beautiful ruffle along the edge and um, we have a lot of ways to port that knowledge into the types of systems that we're designing so uh, certain tissues can display capabilities like this as, as well um, i think another area that hasn't been investigated where where things like like buckling um, and non-linearity would be really cool is, is besides an individual robot, how we could use this in swarm settings. So having living robots come together in a swarm and self-assemble into new, new shapes and forms where we could um, leverage nonlinearity to create things like zippers or twists or ruffles for specific tasks. I think that's not well understood, but it's a growing area of study from a number of groups. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And once you mentioned about maybe some cells could be open loop and other could be have feedback. From your perspective, which way could be effective in design? Is it for you easier to have open loop or just have feedback? And which one could be optimal for you? I don't know, combining both of them in the design, maybe different cell yes. that have open loop and other have feedback. I don't know if how, it, how, it, how it looks to you, what could be easier for designing. Right. So what's nice is a lot of this comes prepackaged in the biology and we know pretty well. And so in our system, we get open and closed loops at the same time. So for simple tasks like movement, mm -hmm. these are very much open loops. It's running the stereotype program and it has no understanding of what the whole body is doing. You have cardiac cells that contract at a set rate and a physics that drives the system forward. And it's going to do that regardless of if it's cut in half or smashed or, or pushed against an obstacle. Uh, but we also have this, these baked in features like repair or sensing or guided behavior. And, and these are very much closed loops where there's a, a feedback between the behavior or the morphology or, or the environment and the appropriate response that the cells are doing. And so they're, they're making decisions, you know, the cells aren't running their repair program in the absence of damage. Energetically, that would be a huge amount of wasted energy. But it's something that they're primed. They're they're sensing their immediate environment. And should a damage cue come in, they can turn on that cassette that initiates the repair regime. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think what's nice is is we can sort of tweak the system in both directions. So if if we would like there to be the cell doing more of the heavy lifting and computation, there are systems in which that has already been worked out possible. And if we would like something that's much more like a traditional open loop system where it's just a machine that is running on a program. There's a lot of synthetic biology approaches where you literally just have cassettes mm -hmm. and you place it in the cell and it does simple math and it gives you an output based on exactly what program it's running. Mm -hmm. Great. So we are close to end and have a few questions. The, 
I'm curious to ask you, do you have any crazy ideas about upgrading living cells? Something maybe outside the box. Uh, do you have any kind of crazy ideas if you can share? Uh, well, we always have tons of crazy ideas. I think the one that I have not investigated yet that I would love to get into is, is we're just beginning to look at how these things can perform as a swarm. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, you, you talked about growing up, what were some really cool influences? And I remember there were just, there was an awful lot of cartoons as a child yeah. that involved groups of robots that would assemble into a huge machine, right? So Voltron and Power Rangers, yeah. they, they all have this individual robots that can self-assemble into a larger robot. Yeah. Um, and I think that's super cool. Uh, I think that's really interesting. And I think the idea of Xenobots and soft-bodied robots and just nanorobots in general, the idea that you could have it both sort of two aspects. One is individual robots that perform one task and then groups of robots that now have a different functionality. Um, on the flip side, I love this as a way to build size. So building a giant, you know, 10 centimeter living robot might be difficult, but if we could build individual components that can self-assemble, that would be much cooler. And you could imagine something like my Xenobots right now can move through really tiny capillaries, so smaller than a millimeter in diameter. So you could feed a thousand individual robots through a small opening. When they get to the other end, they self-assemble into a large robot that does some task, and then they just break apart into individual components and swim away and, and decompose. I would love to look at swarm dynamics and really what we could do with getting groups of these to, to self-aggregate in some way. Yeah, that's great, yeah. So maybe here the question about what could be the crucial technological roadblocks for living cell and soft robotics, maybe in short term and long term? So I think right now uh, the main issue is really the, the effort that goes into producing them. So I think we really suffer from a lack of fabrication and automated design. Mm. And that technology is, is exists. I, currently so the the 3d cell printers on the market i think do what we need to do it's just going to take someone to put in that initial investment of research and development to adapt the technology to the types of applications that we're doing so a lot of these are, are printing large-scale things on scaffolds right to build uh, cartilage for knee replacements or for jaw replacements or sort of macro scale things and i think it's just a matter of working on the precision, which is completely achievable to build something on the size that we're talking about with the precision that we want. Um, and then I think the other other big holdup is what we talked about a little bit at the beginning. We're really limited in the model systems that we have access to at, in biology. And so there are only a certain number of things which, which grow well in Petri dishes mm -hmm. or that we have a genetic control system for. And making sure that we don't really shoehorn ourselves and push the field in the direction that favors one particular model, I, th I think that's something we need to resist. I think we need to say, all of these are really tools and, and you're not gonna use a hammer for every job in your house. Sometimes you need a screwdriver mm -hmm. and that might be cells from a fish versus cells from a frog or cells for a human. And understanding these as really a sandbox technology as opposed to a, a definitive, this is the master regulator of all biological robots. Yeah, yeah. So maybe here's a question about uh, using or be the ethics behind using a living seal uh, for design. Uh, we're mm -hmm. going to have the third soft robotics debate, and it's about how we can um, uh, having by hybrid design, or maybe we have to use only artificial material, and why we have to use living seal in design. 
So how do you see the debate? If someone telling you, well, we have to use living so uh, You mentioned example at the beginning, and sometimes it could be have some uh, advantage. So, But some people say it is not ethical to use this living so How would you respond to that? And uh, why do you think it's very crucial to have them in designing a system for a solution for different applications? Yeah, so I think, um, I think number one, uh, ethics with biological and biohybrid designs is, is absolutely essential. So this mm -hmm. debate needs to be had and it should likely be had in public so that the, the general population is knowledgeable about what's happening. Mm -hmm. So the good news is on the biological side, a lot of this is already in place. Um, at academic institutes, there's internal review boards for any experiment that's using cells or animals. And so this review board includes ethicists, veterinarians, and outside consultants. And every experiment that we do needs to be completely reviewed by this board and approved before we can even begin. And that includes things like even exactly how many eggs from a frog will I need to complete this study? And that can change, but then I need to file an amendment. So it's very regulated. And then beyond the institution, there's a huge amount of state and federal regulations that deal with biological materials. So for mm -hmm. example, the Environmental Protection Agency and National Institute of Health both have their own sets of rules and oversight, which are uh, um, both strict and enforced very heavily should you break them. These are good things to have in place. Um, on the flip side, I would say these are really necessary um, and, and using biological materials necessary. So first of all, an individual cell is a living bioreactor that can do all sorts of things that a small robot would have trouble doing. So it could take in a pollutant, metabolize it, mm -hmm. and spit out something that's completely harmless within a single cell. Um, it could sense different things in the environment and soak them up. So there's sort of this built-in nested physiology that's really useful. And then the other thing is the cells that we're using currently, these are completely biodegradable in nature. So they're non-genetically modified at the moment. They are the same types of cells that frogs give off when they shed their skin. And we don't have problems with contamination overtaking the earth. And you can imagine in a human, there's still huge amounts of issues with you know, uh, nanorobots and nanobots were huge and, and even just nanoparticles were a huge breakthrough, but we're finding that the body does not always tolerate them very well. So they tend to get stuck in the kidneys. They're not cleared very well. Yeah. They don't always break down. Whereas if I could use a human stem cell and build a material, it may be something that's completely compatible with the host and does not elicit an immune response. And so I think there's a lot of advantages to using living cells in context where you need something that's that's alive and part of a living ecosystem. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. So maybe we have a question about how we can enable more inclusive culture around combative idea. We have this question every time in the episode about uh, how we can have intellectual inclusive environment for different ideas or approaches. Living system is still not really uh, uh, well explored in tough robotics fields. Still few people do that. Uh, of course, Josh Monger, one of them. So um, how, how you can see this intellectual inclusiveness in acad academia in general? And since you have to prove your ideas and get funding for your ideas, because I think there are other guests in the podcast, sometimes they struggle to get funding. Their funding was rejected for their ideas. And it turned out later, this was really brilliant ideas. And even they have been sponsored in a companies um, for their ideas. So I don't know how you see this kind of um, intellectual inclusiveness for ideas in academia. Do you think we have to make an extra offer to, to prove that we have this inclusiveness in the field? Yeah, I, this, there's a lot to unpack in this question, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I guess I, I would break this down into maybe two different ways. I think first for, for the diversity of, of approaches, um, we personally have been really fortunate in that this is a, a pretty new field. So there's not much entrenchment at the moment. And I think mm -hmm. many other biological and robotics disciplines, this might not be the case. As far as how to avoid those types of issues, uh, I certainly don't have all the answers. I would say I've seen some progress in, in this front. So both at journals and in the scientific meetings that I attend, there's been a lot of support for uh, creating sessions for non-established systems and methodologies that, that I think is certainly a start. It's allowing exposure to these people and getting their ideas out there. Um, I think wrapped up in that, which is a separate issue, but but is part of it, is is this idea of arrogance and elitism in science. Mm. Um, this is something that is a tremendous bother to me that I don't participate in, and has always been a hard part of academic life for me to understand. Mm. Um, I don't understand why why people would put down someone else's work for not using the most expensive or the flashiest approach. Um, and I think for those of us in the field, we need to work very hard and openly to support our fellow pioneers, um, you know, and that's of critical importance. And then last, the only thing I would say is, uh, this is perhaps tied up in this and not directly to your question, but I think there needs, there, there's a huge risk. This isn't a problem yet, but one thing that really scares me is we, we must avoid this idea of, of aspects of science becoming a popularity contest. Hmm. Um, I, I don't like the idea that the investigator is the brand and that you measure success in retweets for media coverage, right? I think that the work and not the investigator is what needs to stand on its own in the eyes of the community. And we, I think social media is, is a tremendously valuable tool to us. I, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm pushing that away. I think it needs to be embraced and it has huge amounts of uses. Yeah. But we, we do need to avoid some of these aspects, like you said, of, of it snowballing into these mega names that just dominate the field and mm -hmm. they're able to suppress junior people who maybe work on the fringes or trying things that are a little bit outside the box. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think just being aware of that and, and being willing to have those debates in, in public and think about those as we do our work is really important. That's a really wonderful point. I, I agree with everything you said. And do you think maybe solution for that, uh, do you think there's something maybe individual or have to be collective in institution? Since it, what you mentioned, I think still individual behavior, so. Yes, I think at the institution, um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's unknown to me how to make progress there. I think we can control our own actions, which is a good start, right? At the individual level, we can make these decisions. How to push the community in that direction, I think is very hard. Um, I think it takes a lot of work and it's very scary. So I think if you are on a hiring committee for a faculty member in your department, mm. you should keep these things in mind, right? That it's not who has the nicest webpage and yep. 10 million Twitter followers. I think that's important, but I think you need to, to, to be willing to divorce yourself and really understand, is this good science, right? And I think yeah. um, I think accountability is a big thing. So I have always been personally, this is not a popular opinion, mm -hmm. but I would love for all reviews to be public and published with the papers. Um, I think that that amount of accountability really helps. Um, I understand why that doesn't happen. I think there's certainly issues that can happen there as well. But I think um, the I'm always in favor of moving decisions and discussion and funding decisions and all of these from behind closed doors with groups of small amounts of people 
to the public. I think this is the same issue we face with diversity, right? So yeah. we say we want diversity. We hire a few people that, that tick the box, but are, are they participating in the decisions? Is their voice being heard? I, exactly. I think that's that's the more important part. We don't want tokenism. And, and just like in diversity, we don't want tokenism in science. We don't want to say, look, we're supporting these new researchers, but you give them one grant to tick the box and then you ignore everybody else. That's really great. I think that's about inclusion as well, that we, ha we have diversity, but we're not inclusive yet. And that's the tricky part. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. the tricky part, yeah. And, and it's, and it's think, hard, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and I would just say, I think that's the failure to understand the problem, right? You're treating yeah. the symptom and not the disease. Exactly. You're not, you're not understanding why diversity is important. You're just checking the box to say we have diversity, and that's not really what the point is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Thanks so much for being honest in this answer. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, maybe a question here: uh, If a student may be interested in having design Xenobots, for example, and having it in in industry, uh, so do you think the issue about reproducibility? Since you mentioned that it is really complex to predict the behavior. Do you have a reproducibility issue for if we speak now? Still, we have a small scale, but do you think? It could be an issue to have reproducible design for living cell and having to be in industry. Do you have answer for that? I don't. I actually don't think that's a problem. So mm. I think what we've learned from both the the modeling side um, and the, the the biological side is is there's a fair amount of robustness in the design. So when our simulator comes up with a design to do a behavior, I'm certainly not matching it 100. percent The number mm. of cells I have are not exactly what's in the model. And the yeah. orientation and polarization of the cells is not what's in the model, but, yeah. but the aggregate physics produces a behavior that's fairly consistent. So in biology, we certainly measure reproducibility by repeating the experiment many, yeah. many times. And what we see is fairly consistent results across all experiments with, you know, we have some, some bootstrapping on there and degrees of freedom of variability. Uh, but we do see a fair amount of reproducibility. And I think as long as, I think people are getting better at this, right? So we've, we've moved away from a simple binary graph to a bar graph to actually showing the scatter plot now to the box chart. I think just fessing up and showing the degree of precision in the experiment is, goes a long way to keeping people honest. But I'm actually fairly surprised at the level of reprodu reproducibility we've been able to see in our system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's great. Okay. And do you think ego is important for the researcher? When you have new ideas, do you think ego sometimes is important? Uh, I would say no hard stop. Um, yeah. I would say self-confidence is yeah. certainly important. And I would also rate curiosity really high on that scale. Um, but I, I would uh, I would surrender the point that ego can help one excel, uh, but in no way is it a requirement to be successful in research at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And which book inspired you? Maybe professionally or personally, it was a book you read and was very inspiring to you. Yes, for, for science or outside of science? As you like. Then, Maybe something you yeah. could be find inspiring. Both, yeah, if you can tell, yeah. Yeah, so for, for science, I read Beak of the Finch, which is a, a very popular book that most biological students read, which is about uh, a group of researchers who work on the Galapagos Island and study Darwin's finches. And they were mm -hmm. actually able to see and measure evolution in real time between generations. And this was really the first time that yeah. people, you know, it was theory, but to see it happen was really cool. Um, and then for, for millennials to read, I would just start by saying, re read anything, um, especially topics outside of science. Do mm -hmm. not limit yourself and your life, right? You are 
you are built to analyze the world around you, whether it's science or not, in ways that other fields don't. You can critically evaluate data. You can understand the problems in government facing, facing the country. Yeah. Um, so I would say work to understand life experiences beyond your own, understand diversity, whether it's gender, race, or religion. Um, mm. And if you open your mind this way, it will improve your, your science. So for me, I can pick up anything by James Baldwin and his yeah. novels and speeches could be have printed today and would make as big of an impact. Um, and certainly uh, for me personally, one of my favorite authors is Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She's a Nigerian writer mm. and she's just taught me that that language can be beautiful to read regardless of the topic. Um, and even her less popular works like Purple Hibiscus is one of my favorite books and, and just get out there and really start learning about the world. and. Um, being creative and learning about things that are different will help you understand science in a way and keep you from getting shoehorned in, in your life and your discipline. Wow, that's so deep. Uh, you mentioned very interesting points. I think that's really a wonderful advice. Yeah. Uh, and what could be the most important quality you have gained while working in academia? Something you have to maintain for your academic journey. Mm -hmm. um, uh, two things that I've learned is is number one, how to how to write clearly is a skill that mm. I needed to work on very hard. Um, I think writing is, and, and I think it's getting harder, right? So, so mm. the kids today are getting less opportunities to write, yeah. and the formats in which they engage are very short, and it's often very difficult to take complex um, discussions in science and write them in a way for a broad audience. And then the other thing I would say for any any budding junior scientist, one of the things you're going to have to learn is that. Science has extremely high peaks when you get a publication or a mm. grant or a position or a postdoc, but you have really long and low valleys in between. And so that, that can be really hard for some people and can cause burnout. You have to enjoy the process of, of I would say, quote unquote, doing science. Mm. And you have to have a, a real passion for discovery or else um, there's not a lot to keep you going during those long periods. And so it really has to come from within you. It has to be something that you want to know the answer for yourself, not because you, you need the trophy at the end. Uh, yeah. it, and, and I think that's tough to learn. Yeah, yeah, that's really all excellent blend. And lastly, what was the best advice was given to you with a personally or professionally and was the life changing? Uh, yes, so this does play in the science, but it's also big outside of science, I think. Yeah. Someone told me that when we hear the word in intelligence, what we think of is academic intelligence. Mm. But there's there's many types of intelligence. So there's social intelligence and emotional intelligence. And uh, um, many would argue that these are equally, if not more important to your academic intelligence. Yeah. And, and those types of, of, of um, emotional and social development, they have to be nurtured and, and researched just as you would your book smarts throughout your life if you really want to become a decent person. And, and, and it will help you understand your colleagues. It will help you sort of understand the motivations of the world and really see things more clearly. It will also help you understand sort of your own internal struggles and be able to deal with them. And, and I just, I think thinking about intelligence as more than just how many books you've read or what you scored on the test was really enlightening to me. Wow, that's really also brilliant advice. So thank you once again, Professor Douglas, for your maybe thoughtful, and I think I really enjoyed your discussion. So thank, thank you, you once again for your time, for this uh, enlightening uh, discussion. Thanks so much. Thank you. Absolutely, my pleasure.